welcome. My name is Yasmin and this is the Go Within podcast. Thank you for tuning in. This week is going to be interesting because I'm actually turning the mic on myself this time. I realize that many of our listeners don't actually know my particular story and how I became so passionate about the Go Within mission. So I asked my sister Amber, who knows me better than anyone and who was the last guest on this podcast, to come in and facilitate the telling of my story. In fact, there are many significant parts of my journey which we didn't really have time to go into, but my aim was to give you an overall picture as to what brought me up to this moment, and I hope I managed to do that. I hope this will help you understand my mission deeper and give you some context to the perspectives I share when hosting other guests. Quite possibly the rest of the story will come out through further episodes, maybe even in drips and drabs, (laughs) through my conversation with other guests. This is the story of how my journey inward started and the things that most propelled it forward. I hope it will inspire you to see the significance of certain experiences you may be facing in your own life. If the short stories we are sharing in any of our episodes touch you and you feel you need support, please remember that my center Sanya is open every day and our greatest joy is to support you along your inner journey and give you the tools you need to move forward most consciously. So here it is, my story. So we're live. You're the interviewer. So (laughs) over to you. Yes. So I think uh, maybe our listeners might be curious about who's usually the interviewer, your story. So let's just start from the beginning. What was it that first made you curious about your own inner life? So I first got into this kind of thing when I was just finishing university. And I had moved back to Malta. And at that time of my life, I was really into traveling So that was my main purpose of the university was to come back to Malta, get a job and money to save up to go traveling. And I, for some reason, really had my heart set on Peru. I just really wanted to go to Machu Picchu and I was just one track. That's what I'm going to do. So I was working in this office and somehow I... I shouldn't really say this uh, live because I was actually working for my father's company or our (laughs) father's company, but I did have a few times where I was getting quite bored at the office and uh, I'll just say it was in my lunch break. Yeah. (laughs) In my lunch break, I would um, just sort of surf the internet and look at different articles and somehow I came across um, some articles to do with yoga and meditation and different stories of people who just had what I felt to be sort of mastered their consciousness and we're just operating on a higher level of vibe and love than, than most of the people and definitely near myself. And my curiosity really got piqued. I said like, wow, okay, there's, there's a higher potential that I can experience in this human life. How are these people doing it? So I started researching a lot. That's how I came to vegetarianism because in yoga philosophy, They believe that the vibration of the food that you eat obviously creates the base for the thoughts that you think. So that's how I first got interested in in healthy food. I didn't really go too deep into it, but it was just, you know, my interest was, was there. And I ended up going to Peru for, I think it was around seven or eight months. And I was supposed to be going with a friend of mine, Charlene. 
And just when I was at the airport leaving from Australia, because I went to Australia for a month first, and then I flew from Australia to Peru. When I was at the airport in Australia, just about to board my flight to go to Peru, Charlene, who was supposed to meet me after two weeks, called me up to say, listen, I've changed my mind, I'm not coming. Which at the time was obviously a massive shock. I was now facing sort of seven months alone in South America, which seemed quite daunting, but um, it actually turned out to be probably the best thing that happened to me because traveling alone is very different from traveling with a friend. You really get thrown out of your comfort zone and you have to just meet people and talk to people and, and be open to whatever comes. Yeah, so extremely character building, no, they would say. Yes, it's very different from traveling with friends. And I probably never would have had the courage to do it sort of off the bat. It was only sort of arranged for me in this way. So I ended up heading to Peru. The first two weeks I was staying in a surf camp. So I was anyway occupied and in a more or less safe environment. Um, but after that, I started traveling around. And Peru is a very spiritual country. The people there are very connected to the land. They're very connected to nature. And they do really have this spiritual dimension to their lives, which is quite prominent. And since I had already had this intention to learn more about yoga, I was also looking for specific places where I could practice and learn. And eventually I ended up in Cusco, which is the city of Machu Picchu. And that is particularly like a magnet for all the bohemian yogi types. And I got there and I started practicing yoga. And I think actually it was when I went there with you. I'm not sure if it, I had been there already at a point in my journey or we went there together for the first time. Yeah, I, so side note, I, I went to visit Yaz in Peru for just a month while she was there on her longer trip and we were in Cusco together. Yes, I'm not yeah. sure if that was... Because I ended up going to Cusco three or four times. Okay. But uh, well, definitely the time when I was there with you or whichever time it was... I was practicing yoga and we went to this cafe to experience a yoga and raw food breakfast. Oh yeah, it was with me. So there we go. <laughs> and the chef of this restaurant was very into raw foods and after the class he presented us with this breakfast which was amazing and throughout the breakfast he sat down and was explaining to us all about the different superfoods and maca and cacao and all of this stuff which was to me new information I was just blown away by yeah. the idea that these foods can have all these health benefits and and so on and I also did a reiki course while in Peru so that was really the, the time where I first started getting access to spirituality um, it wasn't religion, which is the way that I was used to connecting to God throughout my childhood. Um, but it was a way of experiencing your the divinity within your own self and the divinity outside of yourself in a way that I had never been, I had never had access to before that time. So it was an incredibly inspiring time and I was just soaking it all in, lots of different experiences. But the main change, the real critical point in my life where things started to change was when I went to a place called Iquitos in the north of Peru, which is deep into the Amazon jungle, so deep that there are no roads to get to this city. You have to either fly or get a cargo ship. 
And because I was traveling for so long and I was on an extremely low budget, I was trying to do everything budget style by that point. (laughs) This was actually the last month of my trip. I decided to take the cargo boat option, which by that time Charlene had actually come to meet me and uh, we had quite an adventurous five days on this ship going up the Amazon extremely slowly (laughs) with the most intense heat and worse smells and food and it was quite an adventure. And when we got to Iquitos, Iquitos is the jungle, it's the Amazon jungle and those of you who don't know or have heard of ayahuasca, the Amazon jungle is very famous for this plant medicine called ayahuasca, which is basically there used as a tool for healing and also for spiritual connection. It is a psych- psychoactive, a psycho psychedelic plant, you can call it, but the people of Peru don't use it as entertainment. Well, first of all, it's not entertaining. It's an extremely difficult, challenging experience. Um, but second of all, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is really to help you go within. A lot of people do it for physical healing, especially when they have very uh, serious health conditions. Um, and also for spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. I actually had no intention of taking ayahuasca because I had met a couple of people on my travels who had done it and who had had really horrible experiences and they told me, whatever you do, don't do it. You know, this is, it was the worst thing I ever experienced and they really put me off. So I had no intention of doing it at all. But uh, in Iquitos, we met this crazy Belgian friend of ours. Well, he became friends on this cargo ship and... For some reason, he just got it into his head that I, me particularly, I don't know why, had to do this ayahuasca. And every day he was telling me this and that, all about it. And I just kept telling him, listen, you know, this is not for me. Till one day he actually pulled me out of my hostel room and sat me down with this shaman. And, you know, I was quite shocked. I just sat down and I looked at this guy and I'm thinking like, okay. And... He looked at me and he said, so you want to do ayahuasca? And I said, well, to be honest, no, I don't really want to do it. And he looked at me and he said, why not? And I said, well, I'm very scared. And he, I'll never forget the look in his eyes when he just turned his head towards me and said, what exactly are you scared of? In that moment, an extremely powerful question. No? Yes, and really his eyes, you know, had this fearlessness, this connection within them and as I looked into his eyes I couldn't remember what I was really scared of I wasn't scared of dying I knew I wasn't gonna die Mm -hmm. so it shattered the sort of fear illusion for you in that moment yes he made me feel like you know all my fears were an illusion so there and then I just said okay I'll do it (laughs) (laughs) very strange rapid turn of events yes and Um, also ayahuasca for I don't know if people are familiar with it or not um, but it's it's not a gentle form of going within. It's not like just sort of slowly building a yoga practice. It's quite an intense sort of, they're throwing you in at the deep end kind of thing. It's so, basically as aggressive as you can get. Exactly. <laughs> so tell us within. a bit about what your experience was like. So in the end, I actually took ayahuasca three times. Um, but I'll tell you the story of the first one. That I think it was three days later, after I had initially sat down with the shaman, with this uh, shaman and for those three days in between I went on a strict fast because I had read that 
the more impurities and toxins you have within your body, the harder the experience is going to be. And everyone vomits quite intensely during the ayahuasca. So I knew I was going to vomit intensely, which I really, you know, I'm not a very comfortable vomiter. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I need to make this as easy on myself as possible. And another thing that I had heard was that the energy of ayahuasca doesn't like the energy of marijuana. And up to that point in my life, I had been smoking a lot of weed. Uh, for the five years previous to Peru, I think it was, maybe four, definitely four, probably five years, um, I was smoking heavily. So I was, I was addicted. And when I landed in Peru, I already had the intention that I wanted to stop. And I remember in Australia, sort of smoking my last joint and saying, like, I'm not going to smoke anymore. And, you know, when you're addicted to something and you stop doing it, you feel a great emptiness within you. So I got to Peru. I was alone. Charlene told me she wasn't coming. And I felt this intense emptiness within me. And for the beginning, I was just dealing with it. I was, you know, I was reading a lot. I was trying to just make peace with this emptiness but at some point I felt like I couldn't handle it alone and I just started smoking again so when I got to the ayahuasca experience I had already had this three days where I just went on this fast to try and make the, the experience easier on myself so I said no weed no far, uh, no food I just ate a little bit of fruit and you do the ayahuasca during the evening so we went to this shaman's house where he has this room, which is basically all stone, raw stone. And there's just a bench around the side of the room. I remember it being stone too, although I'm not, I'm not really sure. But, you know, the room felt very blank and cold and... and not welcoming at yeah, all. Yeah, not welcoming. So I remember sitting there, I was actually had a friend who I had also met on the cargo ship who decided to come and do the experience with me. So he was sitting to my right. And as soon as you go in, they hand you a bucket and they tell you, so this is your... <laughs> That's the welcome. That you this get. is where you puke. And, you know, it's, uh -huh, it's not, not the most sort of... So your only comfort was a bucket. Yes. And it actually does become a comfort. <laughs> the only other thing I had was I had a... a toilet paper roll because mm. yeah, again they tell you you're gonna vomit you're probably gonna have diarrhea so I had this tissue which was like my <laughs> my ammo <laughs> and I remember so they passed around the ayahuasca they sing these special they're called ikaros special uh, holy songs and just after the brew was was given to us there was just one candle in the corner of the room which was lit and as I felt the ayahuasca start to enter my system, you feel a bit like you're... Well, I felt like I was losing control. I felt like I... The, you know, it's like reality starts to kind of pulse in and out and you're not quite sure. It's very disorientating. Kind of feels like you have vertigo. Mm. And I remember just looking at that candle and feeling like if I can keep looking at that candle, I'll be okay. Like the, the flickering flame was was allowing me to hold my bearings because the rest of the room was pitch black. So in the pitch black, even more, you sort of lose yourself. So I was really, really staring at that flame. And then suddenly the shaman's assistant, or the shaman says to his assistant, apagar la vela, turn out the candle. And I remember just this wave of panic, you know, coming over me because I thought now, now I'm lost. Losing and your sense of reality altogether. It's ex excruciatingly, mm -hmm. yes, very, very scary. 
anyway, he blew out the candle and then I could see just a crack of light coming under the door, under the door. So my eyes just went to this crack, you know, just this very faint light. And I was just trying to hold on for dear life onto this faint light. But eventually, obviously, the ayahuasca just sort of flooded my system and I just couldn't. And you basically just have to surrender to the experience. Um, I felt a little bit like I was being disconnected from my body because my body was kind of there, but my mind was, you know, flowing and flying and going through um, God knows where. (laughs) And I have to say those first, you know, the first sort of hour, hour and a half, maybe two was extremely challenging and felt extremely uncomfortable. I remember thinking to myself, why on earth am I doing this? Why, Why am I doing this to myself? And I remember thinking very clearly, I am never doing this again. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I actually two more times. I actually said that every time I did it I said mm-hmm. I'm never doing this again so for, you know for anyone listening who might think oh this is a drug or this is fun no this is not fun this is really challenge to your core and you see a lot of visions and you you know you're you're basically on this sort of trip within your own subconscious but eventually that intensity where you're totally out of control sort of wears down of course there's a lot of vomiting in between and you know I ended up sort of with my head just sort of hanging on to this bucket um but eventually that does go down and you start to feel I felt extremely spiritually connected up until that time even though I was getting interested in yoga I couldn't really believe that God existed I wanted to believe because To me, I felt scared, honestly, to think that there's no meaning to my life and no meaning to this universe. It it made me feel so insignificant and so lost. I didn't know what's right, what's wrong. And the system of yoga attracted me because it had that direction, it had this philosophy. But at the same time, I couldn't really believe it because I hadn't experienced it. And I didn't want to be one of those people that just believes because it's easy. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to believe because I was scared. I wanted to believe because I thought this was the truth. And that moment, that night, was the first time where I really experienced this connection to God. And that toilet paper roll, which I took to wipe up my vomit and my diarrhea... I I actually use wiping my tears because I just started crying and crying and crying. And it was tears of joy and pain at the same time. It was a joy of discovering this connection with my higher self, with the divine. And also tears of the fact that I've missed that connection. It felt like, you know, when you see a, a long lost loved one after 10 years, you sort of cry for all those 10 years where you haven't been with them. Yeah. So it was it was a very, very intense It's a realization uh, that actually that connection had been there throughout your life, only you didn't recognize it until yes. that first moment. Yes, and there was a pain in there in that. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I was even crying for all the times in the future where I would lose it again. Mm. Because I've had moments since then where I've also cried again at this reconnection and also cried for, again for more... You right. know, so who knows? We're constantly forgetting really. and having to remember again. Yes, exactly. Um, but anyway, sort of the experience came to a close. And um, after that, I felt very, very connected for at least two weeks after the ayahuasca. Probably more, but let's say definitely two weeks. I felt like everything made sense in my life. Things became so clear. I felt all the synchronicities were just coming to me. 
So this is something that's quite common in, in spirit, spiritual circles that people see synchronicities and, and take that as a sign of a, of a higher order. Well, in this state, everything was so amplified that I, I couldn't say this was a coincidence. The synchronicities that were happening were so clear and unbelievable that I really did feel like I was part of an intelligent universe. And it was really a homecoming moment for me. And the, the beauty and the depth of that experience is actually what made me do it again. Because like I said, I was sure I'm never doing this again. This is horrible. And I did it the second time and I did it the third time. And every single time I said, never again, what on earth am I doing? But that joy of connection is so deep and there is nothing like it in this world that can fulfill you in such a deep level. So you end up saying, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go through that pain to get this yeah, joy. It's worth it. It is worth it. And another thing I think is important to mention was that from that day, I stopped smoking. So the ayahuasca gave me that connection that I could then face my emptiness and not be alone. Mm-hmm. And you, you see this a lot with people, especially who are addicted and addicts. You know, sometimes you drop the substance that you're addicted to but you don't have the tools to face the emptiness Mm -hmm. and I didn't have the tools to face I tried quitting a million times but after the ayahuasca I felt it wasn't just me I don't know it's very difficult to explain really but I guess it made you realize what void your smoking was filling and then you discovered the voidlessness actually of of your being right yes thank you for finding the words into words That was exactly it. You know, you're trying to cover up this void and then you realize there's a way to, instead of cover it up, fill it. Yeah. Fill that void with connection. So after that, my interest in yoga, my interest in meditation just skyrocketed. And I said, okay, I'm not going to take ayahuasca every day. I'm not going to take ayahuasca every month. And in fact, I've never taken it again since the over eight years ago that I was last in Peru because... For me, it showed me the way. It showed me that I need to find this divine connection. And then I said, well, the ways to do that are infinite. Mm-hmm. Right? Yoga, meditation, we, we talk always on this podcast about what those things are. So I, I didn't feel I needed to keep coming back to it. But I felt, okay, now I have a map for what I can do when I do feel like I want to smoke. And after that, I did smoke again. Because at the end of my travels, I came back to Malta. And I found it extremely difficult after being away for such a long time to transition back into the life that I had here before mainly because I felt so different I felt like a different person my values completely shifted suddenly and I came back to Malta and everything was the same my friends were the same and my friends who I love and I'm still in touch with most of them they couldn't understand the experience that I had had and it's understandable because you have to have it to really understand it And I remember at that point in my life coming back and thinking, okay, I want to do something with my life to help people have these experiences Mm -hmm. that I just had. And the only way that I knew at that point was Reiki because I had just done a Reiki course. So I remember being around my friends uh, one evening, sort of around the sofas and everyone was smoking weed and I was not. And I remember proudly telling them, okay, now I'm going to become a Reiki practitioner I remember one of my friends just looking at me and going, are you serious? You you have a master's degree. You're going to do Reiki. Like you are so much better than that. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that comment because it really hurt me so much at the time. But it also made me really question, okay, 
do I really want this? And as I said, I did start smoking again because I did feel very isolated from my friends. And before that, the only way I knew to connect was to smoke. Yeah. Oh, let's go watch sunset and smoke a joint. It was never let's go watch sunset. It was always, you know, the plans were sort of around the joint smoking. So I felt extremely isolated and it was extremely difficult period for me. Luckily, I then met a couple of friends who had also had similar experiences and were not smoking anymore and were trying to live a more clean and and life sort of centered more around being healthy and and well and and this seeking, spiritual seeking, you can call it. So at that point, I said, wow, great. Now that I have a new tribe, I can let go of the smoking because I was only smoking at that point to keep my friendships, even though that sounds totally crazy. That is how I felt. So I stopped again, this time on my own. And I actually went to a yoga retreat organized here in Malta. And I said, okay, I'm not going to smoke for the duration of this retreat and hopefully never again. And that is what happened. Um, And actually, it is worth mentioning that I did have a friend and mentor at the time who I was discussing my smoking with and my inability to, to quit again. And she told me, she just looked into my eyes and said, you know, Yasmin, you have all this power within you, your personal power, and you're choosing to waste it on this addiction. And she didn't say sort of who knows what you can do without it, but that's what I was thinking. I was saying, well, okay, I'm, I have all this power. I'm giving it to this addiction. What if I didn't? What, how would my life look? What could I do with this power? And I have to say, I'm very grateful for those words because they really stopped me wasting time because I'm sure I would have quit eventually but that really lit a fire under my ass Mm -hmm. and then I went the next week to this retreat and and quit smoking for good that's quite quite inspiring and motivating I think we all have our addictions and sort of hurdles and in a way I think we all tend to waste our power in in different ways you know whether it's addictions or Netflix or shopping or whatever it is and it's only when we find that something that it's worth giving up all that other stuff for, you know. Yes, definitely. And I think it's really important to tell this story because I think we're really facing a crisis of addiction at the moment, mm-hmm. especially drugs. I know there's a lot of people right now in Malta who want to legalize weed and I am totally for it being legal because I don't believe that people need to spend their life in prison and I don't feel like that's going to rehabilitate them. But at the same time, I think we also need to be very brave to face the conversation around addiction. And I can say this sort of with a clean conscience because I was there and I was highly addicted. And even though a lot of addicts feel like their addiction is very functional, they can still get along with their lives. I know people who smoke weed every day who have you know, great careers, have great companies, have a family, it doesn't really disrupt their life too much. But, you know, that question is, okay, well, without it, what could we be? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a very important question. And I don't want to say this to make anyone feel bad if they are addicted to anything, because we are all addicted in many ways to many things. But I think the sort of glorification of drugs, and particularly weeds in our culture, has meant that so many people are stuck in behaviors that really and truly, if they were really honest with themselves, they would really be able to admit that it's not really serving them to be the best version of themselves. Absolutely. 
So going back to your experience with ayahuasca, it, from your description, it sounds like it gave you a glimpse or a taste of something that then you no longer required it to keep sort of going back for that taste. And you found yoga and meditation as a tool. Uh, talk to us more about how to this day you're still using, especially meditation, as a tool. Yes, so... I think I need to sort of continue the story to say exactly how I came to be so connected to meditation because when I came back from Peru I actually started teaching meditation straight away and you know it was a beautiful thing because I created this thing called Meditation Mondays which you know well because you you ran it for many years after I did um but it was actually inspired by Peru after the ayahuasca I went to this gathering where it was you know, every Monday and they used music a lot so they were singing sacred songs and spiritually uplifting songs and then closing with a meditation so when I came back to Malta I said okay great this is my way of creating my own community here and I started these every Monday circles and they ended up, as you know, becoming a very big thing, you know, with 40, 50 people sometimes coming to my our mother's house. Squeezed into this small underground room. <laughs> yes. Um, and it then carried on at Why Not? But I have to say, I mean, I'm that kind of character, perhaps almost too overconfident, <laughs> that I said, OK, you know, I have this knowledge, I'm going to share it when if I really look back from myself now to the person that I was then, I was totally not qualified to teach meditation at all. <laughs> yes, that may be the case. But at the same time, I think you still did a great service because there were so many people at that time who who wanted to live a similar lifestyle and lacked that community. And even though you weren't particularly experienced, there were other people who were even less experienced who you could still help. So, Yes, definitely. Um there at that time and even now there aren't that many places you can meditate in Malta so the fact that it was so successful showed that there was a need a need for it but the fact is that at that time I didn't know what meditation was I I had had that glimpse yes so in a way I was trying to recreate that glimpse and I think we did manage many weeks to especially through the music really find that uh, place of inner peace absolutely but what happened after that was when I really discovered meditation and it happened really, I would say, because I wanted a teacher, because I felt very lost. And I think this is something that many people struggle with, is that in spirituality, what you'll find is that two opposites are equally valid. For example, this might not be the best example, but it's the one that comes to mind right now. You could say that a spiritual truth is do not lie. But then you can also say to protect someone, you might need to lie. And knowing when this each truth is applicable can be very, very confusing. And at that time, I was learning all these sort of spiritual truths and I was getting very confused as to when to apply what and, and are both really right or am I just, you know, making that up? Yeah, because with confidence, you can sort of argue anything to be true, right? Definitely. And I still believe that to this day, you know, it's very difficult to set anything in stone. There is a, a context towards everything. But I, I didn't really understand how to 
create that context and how to analyze what was appropriate when. So I felt a little bit overwhelmed by everything I was learning. I, I felt a little bit lost and I felt like I was going backwards because after taking ayahuasca, it's very easy to feel connected. But when you leave the ayahuasca behind and then you have to do your daily practice, it is so much harder. And I understand people who want to go and take these kinds of substances every month because it's so much easier than trying to do it on your own. The fact is that to create a daily practice in meditation is extremely difficult. The discipline that's required? Extremely difficult. So at that time I said to myself, okay, I really want to meet a teacher. And I actually met a teacher, not necessarily the the, the guru, you know, the, the archetypal guru that I was attracting, but I met a woman called Lydia, who many people in Malta know. And she was really a savior to me because she was a role model. She was practicing what I wanted to practice and she was a guide to me. And I started going to her place every Friday for meditation, which she's still doing to this to this time. <laughs> so that's quite amazing. And she was telling me that she has this teacher, this meditation teacher. And I got very excited. I said, wow, I can't wait to meet him. Like I'm going to meet an actual master of meditation. And he came to Malta a couple of months later and I went to one of his talks. And I think at the time I had a lot of attachments and a lot of illusions in my mind. And I had this idea that this guru was going to come and he was going to enlighten me and give me an ayahuasca type experience with just one glance. I I was expecting fireworks and miracles and, (laughs) you know, the whole shebang. And I met this very humble, simple man who did nothing of the sort. He looked at me with love, I could see that, but he didn't impress me and I wanted to be impressed. So I said, nice man, I respect him, but he's not my teacher. And I carried on with my struggle and I remember some months later telling Lydia again, I'm so lost, I want to find my teacher. And she told me, but you met him already. And I said, no, he's not my teacher, I need my teacher. And anyway, a few months later, he came back to Malta again. And by coincidence, I just happened to be close to one of his events. And Lydia sent me a message saying, listen, you know, we're doing a meditation at this place. Why don't you come and join? I said, "Okay, yeah, I'm here in the area. Why not? And I got there. It was actually in Gozo, in Chikantia temples. They were doing a meditation there. And I didn't really know what to do. I just sort of sat down in the corner, started doing my meditation not really knowing what I was doing and really wanting to feel something, but feeling like I'm probably not going to. And then the meditation ended and I said, yes, you know, as usual, I'm not getting anywhere with this meditation. So frustrating. Maybe I should just take ayahuasca again and feeling like a failure, really. And we stood up to leave. And as soon as I stood up, this wave of love, I can call it, wave of connection, wave of inner peace just flooded through me. It was very, really like a wave. It was very tangible. It wasn't as slow. It was mm-hmm. whoom. And I remember thinking, whoa, a small taste of something you would feel like on an ayahuasca. You, know? you recognized it. It was just a bit more mild, but you knew that feeling. You were already familiar. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I remember my boyfriend at the time, we stood up to leave and we're walking away and he was saying, oh, should we go here? Should we go there? He was trying to make conversation and I was in this cocoon of bliss. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I felt like the more I talk, I'm going to break this state. I just wanted to stay in it and float in it. And that moment I said, okay, 
if this man can make me feel this, not with ayahuasca, not with any substance, but just by doing meditation, I want to learn more about this. So he was in Malta for about 10 days and every day I went to whatever program he was doing. And at the end of it, he said to me, listen, if you don't come to Bali, to my ashram, you're going to forget what I've taught you. And I remember thinking at the time, how can he be serious? I felt like I learned so much from all these uh, classes that he was giving. I felt very inspired and enlightened. I said, no, I won't forget. But yeah, I mean, why not? Bali, I could, I could do that. And he left, he went back and I carried on in my daily routines and struggles Till just like ayahuasca, you know, for a few weeks after you're on this high, <laughs> but then slowly and surely you sort of degrade and, and go back to your normal consciousness. And one day I was just feeling a bit bummed out about it all. And I put on this music, which I used to listen to in Peru. And that music just triggered that remembering of that feeling. And I went into this state of peace and, and connection. And it just gave me this push to say, you know what, this is what's important in life. You need to do this. Forget about how much money is in your bank account or where your next job is gonna come from. Because at that time I was a hippie going from job to job. <laughs> I said, this is important, find this first and then sort out the rest. And that's what I did. Next day I booked a flight and three weeks later I was on a plane to Bali again on my own. And I would say this was definitely the most significant experience of my entire life because I visited my teacher's center of meditation. My teacher's name is Prabhu. And being there in this center really immersed me in the lifestyle of a meditator because mostly we go about our daily lives, we do lots of different things, and we expect that at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day when we sit on our mat, that we're gonna be able to concentrate. Without paying any attention to what it is we do during our day, that creates the state of mind that comes to sit on that mat. Whereas when you're in a meditation center, everyone has taken a pause out of their life. All the people who live there are very particular kind of people who are immersed in that state. So it was really an education in everything, from the way I ate, to the way I showered, to the way I walked, to the way I moved. Everything was about your state of mind. And after being there for a week or so, Prabhu turned to me and said, okay, tomorrow you're going to start sadhana. I had no idea what that meant. I just remember nodding, <laughs> thinking, I hope he's going to explain what that is. <laughs> and he did. He said, sadhana is a very disciplined practice where you commit to do a certain amount of meditation in a certain way for a particular time. And he said, listen, you have a month here, so you're going to do two weeks and you're going to follow my strict protocol. So I had to meditate for five hours every day, two hours in the morning, one hour at lunchtime and two hour in the evening, but very strictly. So I had to start and finish at a particular time. I had to wake up early. I had to shower before each time. I didn't leave the ashram. I didn't go on the internet. I ate only the food that they gave me, no chocolates, no sweets, which might seem like a small thing, but when you get sugar taken away from you for two weeks, it's no small thing. It's really... Es especially when in that sort of environment and when you're meditating that much, 
I'm sure a lot of stuff comes up, as it usually does in our daily life, but we can kind of suppress it with a bit of tasty food or whatever comforts we usually turn to. So all of that was sort of just taken away from you. So how did you navigate your way through that? Yeah, and honestly, I faced some really hardcore cravings and they did make me feel very crappy at times. So actually just a few days ago was reading back my diaries that I was writing because I was writing every day and that was a very big tool to help me process how I was feeling. But yes, there were days where I really struggled and suffered and was faced with a lot of my own shadows. And I do remember getting given fruit every now and then. I remember this fruit was like (laughs) getting gold. (laughs) This fruit had never tasted so sweet before. And I remember pacing out my fruit to to last me the two weeks. But yeah, I think the, the main thing that I learned through this sadhana was one, how to come into a relationship with the divine, with God, not as a peak experience, so yes, ayahuasca is a peak experience. Sometimes you just have this you know, out of the blue moment where you just feel this intense spiritual experience. But I learned how to cultivate a depth to the experience that wasn't about a high, but it was about a relationship. And I think it was the struggles really that made me ask for help. And this might sound again quite strange for most people, but I remember going to sit down for one of my evenings, two hour sessions, And there were times where I would sit down and I would just fly and I would enjoy a two-hour meditation. And then there were other times where every minute felt like an hour and I felt, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get through this two hours? And I remember one day in particular where I struggled in the morning, I struggled in the lunchtime, and then I came to the evening and I thought, how on earth am I going to get through this? And I remember going to the temple and intuitively I just... I had this very special incense in my bag and I got out this incense and I took this incense to the temple and I I was saving this incense for home because it was special to me and it was hard to find but I'm saying I'm going to light five of these incense and I'm going to offer it to God and I'm going to say God please help me so really I was making a transaction I was saying I'm going to give you this incense (laughs) my best incense please help me but it sounds funny, but I think the sincerity in my heart of just wanting help and guidance made that prayer powerful because I did sit on that mat and I had a really deep experience. And from then onwards, I realized that God is not this fixed entity. He's not a man in the sky. He's not. God is an energy. God is a power. And we can communicate with that power We are a part of it and it is a part of us. But I had honestly never really been taught that. Even when I prayed earlier on in life, I don't know, maybe I simply wasn't ready, but I I didn't feel like I was in a relationship. And that's what the ayahuasca gave me is that possibility. And then in this practice was when it really solidified. And the other thing that I really learned was to face my own dark side. And I think this is extremely important because a lot of people meditate and that's great and you should strengthen your connection to the divine. But we also need to understand that we have an ego, we have a mind. And if we don't work to purify that and to understand that, it's going to sabotage us. And you might have met people who have meditated for 30 years and meditate every day but they're not kind. 
and they're not compassionate and they're not loving. And I really remember thinking, how on earth have people meditated for so long and they are still not kind? Because for me, that was the goal. It started back to that research I was doing when I was sitting at that office desk and thinking, how do people like Mother Teresa and Gandhi and all of these saints that I've heard of, how do they love so much? So for me, meditation and love, that was the goal, to be better, to have, to live and embody these values. So in this time, I, I did as much work as possible to look at my own anger, my own need for approval, my own insecurities, a whole long list. But honestly, I would say my need for approval was the biggest one that I faced in that time. And I realized just how much my own self-worth depended on what others thought of me. And that was a really hard struggle. It was hard to see. You don't want to see that in yourself. And it was really hard to take responsibility for. And also hard because I didn't necessarily know how to fix it. All I knew was that I could see it now. And I didn't want to turn my head away. But I didn't know exactly what the solution was. But I wrote. I wrote. I did my meditation. I did all my practice. And what I realized was that just seeing your own weakness actually starts to unravel a lot of it, a lot of its power over you. So I felt like I came away with these two dual practices of self-reflection and really looking at my darkness and then also looking at my light and looking at this connection and looking at this beautiful new way of seeing the world. Because when you realize that there is this higher power, you realize that that relationship is precious and there are things you do in your life that makes that relationship stronger and things you do in your life which makes it weaker. So for me that became my compass of what's good and what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And I knew, for example, at that point that if I smoke weed, I'm not going to be able to meditate and I'm not going to be able to listen and I'm not going to be able to connect. So for me that was then an easy choice of morality, what is right for me and what is wrong. And I won't say to anyone, weed is wrong. But it's about asking that question is, okay, we have this relationship to this higher power. If you've got to that stage where you feel that, what am I doing in my life, which is making it harder Mm. and what is making it easier? Mm -hmm. And I think there there might be moments where weed will help you. There are certainly people who smoke weed once and have a peak experience. Mm -hmm. But day in, day out, when something is an addiction, can we truly say that it is taking us closer to that relationship? Yeah, in a way, it's not actually about the plant itself, but our relationship to it, no? Like you're saying, this addictive tendency. Exactly. Same with Netflix. Right. Are you you watching one episode or one documentary a month, or are you binge-watching seven series, seven episodes in a go? Right. That is the question. Right. I'd love for us to take a bit of a closer look to your relationship with your teacher, Prabhu, because, um, I mean, I, I feel like I know what your relationship with him is all about. But I know that it's something that in Western culture and in Malta, we're not used to the idea of guru or whatever you want, whatever title you want to use. I think in the past, we, as Catholics from Malta, we we had priests as intermediaries, but still the relationship between a follower or believer and a priest was a bit different to, I think, what you have with Prabhu. So I'd love to just hear more about that. Yes, and thank you for asking, because honestly, I didn't go too much in depth into that relationship, because 
there is still a discomfort for me personally because I know a lot of people really understand this kind of student-teacher relationship. But for me, as you know, it has been a really important part of my life and I'm a big believer in having mentors for whatever it may be. If you're in business, you need a business mentor. If you're in music, you need a music mentor. If you're in art, you need an art teacher. And in fact, you do have a business mentor as well, right? Yes, I do. (laughs) I think I have many mentors, but when it comes to my spirituality, Prabhu was the one who I sort of over time came to have a very deep level of trust towards. And of course, trust is crucial in any student-teacher relationship. But I think it's very funny how we find it so easy to have mentors for material things. Like, no one would call you crazy if you, as a musician, would say, I need to find a music mentor. Mm-hmm. Everyone would be like, yeah, of course, common sense. But if you tell someone, listen, I'm going to find a mentor who's going to help me with my spiritual connection, or even with my mind, i.e. a therapist, mm-hmm. we're like, oh, no, 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 that's weird. That's There's still a taboo around both of those. Definitely. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think there's a few factors. Um, probably one is that... The inner world is a lot more vague, right, than the outer world. So there are a few more challenges that can come to that. Secondly, I think there is a power relationship between a student and a teacher. There's a power dynamic. And there have been many teachers in history who have abused that power dynamic. So many teachers, be they music teachers, art teachers or spiritual teachers, have abused that power and taken advantage of their students, knowingly or even unknowingly. So, and, and because our inner world is such a delicate and vulnerable thing, you know, if, if a music teacher isn't good, you just, you just change, change your it. teacher. There's no trauma. But for your inner world, there is a level of vulnerability and, and openness that you have to have with that teacher, that if that teacher then betrays that, the level of trauma is going to be a lot deeper. So, in a sense, we're right to be skeptical and we're right to really test your teacher. You're not going to just meet someone and be like, oh, great, this is my teacher. You need to test them as much as they need to test whether you are really willing to learn because it, it goes both ways. But for me, my experience from that first sadhana was that this man was very selfless. So for me, I saw that he's selfless and I truly believe that he wants the best for me. And that might be sometimes telling me things that are hard to hear or making me do practices that I don't want to do. But something in me recognized that this person wants the best for me and wants the best for me at his own expense. And I think that is obviously the biggest test you can put onto someone. Will they put your good before their own? Really and truly. And that's how most teachers fail us is that they don't. So... For some reason, in that first time, I already recognized it. But obviously, the relationship has deepened. I've known him now for over seven years, around eight years, I think now. And I have seen him go through many different things in life, his own challenges, how he dealt with my own challenges, how he dealt with the challenges of other students. So now our my trust in him is deeper than it ever was because I have more experience to see how, what kind of person he is. It wasn't easy. I won't say that I didn't have my doubts or I didn't have moments where I questioned and said, why is he doing this or why is he doing that? And, but what I did was I never jumped to conclusions and I always opened myself to the possibility that what I'm seeing might be me, 
And so there was, for example, one moment where he did something that I judged. Right? I said, oh, a guru shouldn't act like this. But instead of just condemning him and being like, this guru is not for me, I'm out, I know better. I just said, let me give it some time. Let me sit with this. Could it be that it's something in me that can't accept this? Or that you're not even able to understand it? You're not at that level where you can understand what he's seeing? And the thing is with real gurus, with real teachers, is they need to break the illusions of your mind. Mm. And very often it's extremely uncomfortable. So what he was doing in that point was, I'm very sure he did this specifically to test me. But in that moment, you think, oh, I know better, and you judge, because that's what we do as humans. But I, I always took my time to say, maybe it's me. Maybe I have some kind of thinking or some way of viewing the world that is not quite right, and I need to check first which one it is. If I really believe that he was wrong, then I would leave the relationship. But... Every single time so far, it has turned out that it was my illusions, really, that were causing the judgment and the problem. And every time a situation like that came, I was the one that grew out of it. So I have to say that, you know, this has been great for me because that's what I wanted. I wanted to process my shadow. I wanted to become a a clearer pain, a, a clearer glass. I wanted to clean all of those smudges and illusions that I had. But I think as students, it's very easy to fail in these tests, Um, extremely easy. And the difficult thing is that we never really know if a teacher is for us and if that teacher is a true teacher. So There's no guidebook. This is not like a travel guide. You know, the spiritual world is full of tricks (laughs) that you never really... So many paradoxes as well. So many paradoxes. And that's exactly what I told you. There's the paradox, you know, and that's that's exactly what I struggled with. These paradoxes were driving me crazy. But, and as I said, you know, it's not for everyone. I get it. Having a guru is not for everyone. And, And honestly, I would say it's not for most people because you do have to sacrifice a lot to follow the teachings of a guru. So I have, I have sacrificed many things in the seven years. But for me personally, what I got was bigger than my sacrifices. So for me, I feel like I'm a winner in this relationship. But I think not everyone wants to sacrifice. And I think we're not often ready to sacrifice. I mean, next month you might come and ask me to do X, Y, or Z. And I might say, you know what, this is not for me anymore. I'm distinctly open to that possibility. And I think it's important to be because we don't want to be dogmatic. And I think one of the things that people say to you when you have a guru is you're brainwashed as if just because you trust in someone that you've completely dispensed with all of your logic and and (laughs) analytical ability, which if anyone who knows me knows, I'm a very logical and analytical person. So it's not that I'm brainwashed. It's just my calculations are still coming out in favor of this relationship being for my ultimate benefit. And if we can sort of compare it again to the relationship one might have with a therapist, it's a similar thing where you you trust their vision because they are highly trained in their department. So they might be able to see something that you're not seeing. So you would trust them. But if at some point they give you advice that makes you sort of deeply question what they're saying or, or maybe their motives, uh, you're free to leave at any point. Yes, that's exactly it. And I would say 
it's not maybe will that therapist see something you're not seeing. It's 100% because that's what they're trained to do. They are trained to understand the mind and they're trained to see how we sabotage and trick ourselves into believing that things which are bad for us are good for us. And spiritual masters are also trained. They're trained in different ways with different practices, but they are trained to understand how a student of spirituality will also sabotage themselves. So unfortunately, we sort of give a different level of a different barometer for spiritual teachers that we do for other teachers. Um, But I think we need to just become a little bit more open and a little bit more practical when we deal with these kind of questions and, and be open about it. It's okay to calculate and test your guru. It's okay to say, this guru is not for me. And if you haven't met at least one guru who you've said is not for me, then you do have a problem because there are constantly people wanting to teach us something, especially now with the internet, there's always someone trying to give you some information to change your life. So we do need to be very skeptical. But at the same time, when you do find a real teacher and a real master, then you need to also understand that there's a point where you need to surrender your your questions. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, So I'd love for us to now sort of look into how your experiences with your own personal practice or from from the very beginning, from ayahuasca right until now, how these experiences have fueled into what you're doing now with Sanya and with your interest in conscious business and all of that. Thank you. You're very good at this. (laughs) First time I'm the interviewer. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, so... In a sense, I can say everything. Obviously, all of these experiences have led me to where I am now. But I think I can be very specific to say that a spiritual experience at its deepest makes you want to serve others. And that was the thing after that first sadhana, I remember feeling the most love I've ever felt. And I've, I've never felt that, or maybe, maybe once or twice, but very extremely rarely to feel the level of love that I felt at the end of that practice. And it made me feel, honestly, like I can bear any pain to keep giving people love. And I don't mean people I love, I mean every human being on this planet. I felt like I can bear anything to serve. And that was really the beginning of me saying, I want to create something in the material sense to help people. Because before that, I actually studied economics. My bachelor's degree was in economics and I did a master's degree in politics. And towards the end of that master's degree, I became very disillusioned with business because I studied economics and they didn't tell me anything about the dark side of economics. I learned macroeconomics, microeconomics, everything, supply, demand, all about it, three years. And in the master's, I realized that, hold on, Humans' lives are being really affected by economics and very often in a negative way. And the problem wasn't that, was the problem was more that it was being covered up and not really adequately discussed. Everything has a good and bad in life and economies are no different, but it felt to me like no one really knew about all of these issues. I think now there's a lot more awareness, but this was quite a few years ago now. So at the time, I mean, none of my friends at university knew. No one knew about inequality in trades. 
how capitalism had impacted certain countries over others, uh, things like the World Bank, how it operates. So I felt almost betrayed. I said, what on earth? Everything I knew about the world was wrong. And my solution (laughs) at the time was to totally reject business. All I could see was the bad. I said, this is horrible. I want no part of it. I became a hippie. I got dreadlocks, traveled the world, went to Peru, interested in yoga, count me out. And that's why I told you before I went to Bali, I didn't even have a job because I didn't want to be a part of what I perceived to be an industry which was creating damage to the earth and to human beings. When I had this experience, I said, I need to serve. I said, well, if we're going to change the world, and I think everyone under the age of 30 wants to change the world. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Idealistic. Then then when? (laughs) Idealistic teenagers. So yeah, I still wanted to change the world at that at that point. And I said, well, if business is doing so much damage and I want to make a change and I need to change business. And I understand business because I've studied business and our father's an entrepreneur. So I also had that background of um, it being a part of life. And I was also very lucky to come across a book called Minding Your Business, which was written by a guy called Horse Reckerbacher. Well, that's a difficult one. Say that again. Something like this, Rachel Barker. I'll put the link to the book in the show notes. And this book was really a marriage of business with spirituality. And I was so blessed. I mean, what are the odds of this book coming into the ashram through a friend? It it synchronistically found its way to you. On the day that I finished my sadhana. Oh, perfect. And the girl who gave me the book... She just gave it to me. She said, oh, you read it first. I'm a really slow read. I thought, listen, two days, I'll be done. I, I read so fast. And that gave me a sense that I could run a business and still have a positive impact on the world. So I was extremely inspired to leave my son. I said, okay, great. Conscious business is the future. I can take the values of love and compassion and everything I believe to be true in a spiritual sense and then create a business that also reflects that. Yeah, in a sense, business was what you knew. So when you thought, okay, how am I going to impact the world positively? You thought, okay, this is my skill set. And you realized there was a positive way to actually do it. Yes, and probably more than skill set, I would say an interest. Because at the time, even though I studied economics, I actually knew nothing about business. Well, that's often the case. (laughs) After university, you leave feeling you don't know that much. Yes, but I guess it was a combination of synchronicity and the divine. And again, this is where I say, how can this all be random? And also that I was interested in business. So I came back to Malta and I I was ready to put my hands into a project. And I was already, before I left, I had just started getting involved in Lydia's business, which was Anka Cafe. So I came back from Bali very inspired to help her with this project. I said, great, this is... What was that project, Anka Cafe? Anka Cafe was a a centre in Marsa, which has actually just reopened. And... It was mainly a cafe, but Lydia is a very talented naturopathic doctor. So she was healing her patients, many people who have passed through really serious health challenges, helping them to change their diet and also helping them to unpack their own shadows because shadows not only create our ego, but they can also lead to disease. And she is particularly talented with helping people through this process. So I came back, I was very inspired. I said, wow, this is great. Lydia is spiritual. We're teaching people meditation, helping them heal. At the same time, it's a business. I can see if I can make this business match and and, and reflect everything that I believed in. 
And I had a very wild ride at Anka. Um, I would say that was probably the period of my life where I learned the most of my entire life. And a lot of the work that I'm doing at Sanya was inspired by the fact that Lydia helped me go within in a deeper way. Because as I said, I started this shadow work in my sadhana, but really I was just scratching the surface. And as I said, mentors can often be that joker card, which really elevates your game. And Lydia is particularly good at helping people see their shadows. And that's what she did with me. We were creating events for the public, but obviously as part of the organizational team, I got to experience these workshops myself. So I did over 20, I would say, workshops with Lydia, and that really helped me know myself. What were these workshops? They were a variety, lots of different things. I would say probably the most powerful was the breathwork and the family constellations. Uh, These are both, again, two tools to really help you understand your own dysfunction, because we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. So if you've been abused by your father for the sake of argument, you will see other fathers with suspicion and you will see other men with suspicion and you will think that all men are like that until you have cleared out that experience and really healed it fully. You will always have this sense of mistrust. I wasn't abused by my father, I was just giving a, an example, but I had many other patterns that I had to dive into. And I did dive into them. I was ready. I knew this was important for me. I had a good guide. So It was a very productive time for me spiritually. I was on the one hand learning from Prabhu about spirituality and going deeper into my meditation. And then on the other hand, and simultaneously, I was working on my shadow. And I think those two together are power combination, really. You can't go wrong if you're doing both of those at the same time. I I think many people struggle when they do just the one. It takes a lot longer. When you combine them together, the results are really amazing. So that was the beginning of my business journey there at Anka. Um, but I got to the point where I'm quite a hard-headed person, as you <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> You've been with me for long enough. And I, I am the kind of person who wants to do things my way. So I felt I need to do my own thing. I, I wanted to be able to experiment and fail and being only responsible to myself. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did synchronistically again exactly around the time when I was taking this decision someone came into the cafe and said listen I'm selling this kiosk what do you think about it and I for some crazy reason decided to create the grassy hopper so I bought (laughs) this trailer from Brighton never even seen it in my life shipped it to Malta and decided to start creating this business around the concept of healthy office lunches Obviously, uh, that was a journey. It's been five years since I started the Grassy Hopper. And I mean, that in itself, the story of the Grassy Hopper is is a podcast episode in itself. So I don't want to gloss over it, but at the same time, we need to move on. (laughs) I don't know how deep really um, I can go. Well, it's just that also Sanya, since Grassy, Sanya has then gone a step beyond. And I think it's even more relevant to the topic of go within. So I'd rather kind of focus a bit more on that I think also they're linked yeah in a sense they're the same like for me Grassy Opera and the Sanya are almost the same thing 
the heart is the same, just the product is different. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I love about Sanya is that the product is more wide ranging because obviously the product of Grassi is food. Um, even though we are actually have some plans in the pipeline to expand that product range and go more into education and workshops, etc. At Sanya, we are offering those things which helped me the most, which were the yoga, the meditation, these uh, shadow work kind of events, things like the tea ceremony, events that give you a glimpse of that connection and then also help guide you to excavate Mm -hmm. and throw out all of those things that are holding you back. So, yes, in a sense, you know, my whole journey since that plane ticket to Peru has been into myself and just as you do with music you know you use that thing in your life to keep helping you go within and Gracia and Sonia keep challenging me they keep challenging me to know myself better to understand the places where I'm still holding myself back the places where I still have limited belief the places where I'm still not a good leader and where I'm still failing in certain aspects and I do that not with a, oh my God, I'm bad, I'm not good enough. It's once you realize and have done a certain amount of work on your shadow, it's almost liberating to see it. It feels so good to throw off those shackles. And if you don't see the dark, then you can't throw it off. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing the dark is a very small part of of the whole experience. Mm-hmm. So I I enjoy the challenge and I enjoy the growth that it's giving me. And this last year, in particular, I would say it was the hardest year of my life. I was challenged to a level that I had never been challenged before. And my, da- my belief in myself, my doubts, my self-doubts were triggered in a way that have never been before. So I think I was sort of getting to a point where I was doubting my own self. Can I do this? I always had this vision that, yes, you know, Gracia, I had a vision for Gracia, I still do. I have a vision for Sanya and I wanted to get to places beyond where it is now. And I always felt, yes, I can do this. And then this year I got so burnt out that I said, maybe I can't. And that was a real rock bottom for me because I've never been a person that doubts myself. And having to come face to face with that doubt was really, really challenging but at the same time, as we always say on this show, <laughs> really, really productive. In fact, if we can go back to what you said about that feeling that you had after your sadhana, where you said, I would bear anything to serve others in a way that was a prayer or a bid. And then the universe or God or whatever word you're comfortable with using said, all right, let's let's just test how much she really means that, you know. And then, yeah, went about testing you. So let's talk a bit more about those challenges that you had to face. Yeah, and I'd also like to say that specifically before starting Sanya, I went to Gozo before I even knew that this opportunity was available. And I had another one of these moments where I felt very connected. You were there, we were on this um, visit to the sacred places in Gozo which I loved I went back to Chikantia and Tapinu it was my birthday and I again repeated that prayer because I was feeling at that time that I love Malta so much I really love this island I don't know if it's because I lived away for 10 years so I really appreciate what this island has to give and specifically at the moment we're going through a bit of a tough time politically and a lot of people are either really happy with Malta or really 
upset with Moda, saying we're going in the wrong direction. But for me, I just felt the love for my land, the land where my ancestors have walked and worked and sweat and cried and died and been given birth to. And I did say another prayer saying, listen, I'm here to serve this land. No matter how much pain, no matter what you want from me, I'll do it. And it was just 10 days later, I think, that I got the call with the opportunity to take this place. And my first reaction was no. That's the last thing I need. More pressure, more responsibility, more wages to pay, more cash flows to worry about, more accounts to do. No, thank you. But then I remembered my prayer and I said, well... I did ask for it. (laughs) It was only 10 days ago that I was saying I'll bear any pain. And... More than, more than just accepting the pain, I also had to weigh the personal pain and stress on myself with the vision of what I could achieve and the people that I could help. And when you start calculating that, then you realize that your struggle is very small compared to the good that you can do. So that was what really pushed me to say, I'm going to do this. In fact, I'd like to just sidestep, just ask you a, a bit of a random question, but I think it's really relevant to what you've just said. Because I remember when, right at the beginning of Sanya, when we were both sort of working really hard to get this place up and running and uh, we were both just exhausted and stressed and all of that, I remember you turning to me and saying, but how beautiful that we could offer, even our own well-being can be offered as a sacrifice in order to serve. And I thought, wow, that's so beautiful. But at the same time, Sanya has this message and, and many sort of people early on in the path have to come to this realization where self-love and filling your own cup first is really important. So this, again, seems like one of those spiritual paradoxes where both are true and yet they're opposite. What's your opinion on this? Yeah, that's a really good point. And you're right, it is a paradox because I don't believe that we should be unwell and I, that has been, a, I think, one of the main things that I've learned over this last year was how to care for myself, how to stop getting so stressed, how to stop getting burnt out. But at the same time, there are moments of crises in life where you have to put your wellness last, when there are more important things. And year two in a business, especially a business like this, is crises time. It's all hands on deck. Do what you can because you might not make it to year three. And 90% of businesses close within the first year. So I think part of me knew that it's not going to be like this forever. I knew I was putting out more than I was filling back in. But at the same time, I saw an end. So I said, you know, eventually I'm going to get out of this. And I think the lessons that I learned from having to give that amount of sacrifice to Sanya were really, really invaluable. And sometimes it takes a challenge that great to really bring out your good qualities. And I had to really surrender and and trust in the future of Sanya because we have these visions, we have these targets, we have things we need to hit on a business level. And you do all you can do, but then even once you've done all you can do, you keep worrying about it and you keep stressing about it. And that worry and that stress is... Extra energy, loss. It's not helping, Yeah, you know, so... What's the point? But even when you know there's no point, you can't turn off that mind. So for me to learn how to face that amount of tension and financial pressure that I was under, 
And in a sense, I'm still under because Sanya is still not at the place where I wanted to be. But to be able to look that in the face and not get stressed and not be tense has really, really helped me. And I hope it's something that I can pass on to other people because the main message of yoga is to not be attached to the fruits of your outcome. To do your work, offer it as a service, but whether you succeed or fail is not your problem. And I think what really helped me, to be honest, was facing the worst of it. So I said, okay, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is I go bankrupt and Sonia has to close down. That's the worst. Would I survive that? Would I survive that? A part of me almost said, well, I'd actually probably be more relaxed if that <laughs> happened. I have loads of things I could do. I can, I'm highly qualified. I have a master's degree. I could get a job quite easily. So really and truly, if I can stare that worst case scenario in the face and just say, well, actually, I'm quite okay with that, then a lot of that tension can release. So again, you know, all of that shadow work that I did to learn to confront my fears and learn to confront my darkness are really invaluable to me now. And I can only hold that level of responsibility that I have now because of all of that work that I've done. And are still doing. And going back to the need for approval, you know, that was something that I dealt with, but it's still something that I have to deal with now because if Sanya fails, it's my reputation. If Grassy Hopper fails, it's my reputation. And our need for approval from the people around us and in Malta, obviously, the society, your... your successes and failures are quite public, you, you do need to be able to face that and learn to be okay with it. And that makes it a lot harder. So this is something I think that we all struggle with and something, something that should make us realize that investing in your shadow work is crucial, no matter what you're doing, because if you want to do great things, you're gonna have to take more responsibility for yourself. And these kind of shadows, like the need for approval, if I was so attached to needing the approval of society in Malta, I would be so stressed right now and so tense. And I probably never would even have tried to do the businesses I have done because whenever you do something new, the chance of failure is... It's a big risk. It's higher. So, yes, I would say that this shadow work is, is the key, my key. And again, you know, the the two are inseparable, the shadow work and the meditation, because as much as you need to face the dark, if you're not filling up that strength of energy from the light, Mm -hmm. then you're going to struggle to sustain even that. And there's a really beautiful poem that I've shared on my website. And it says, you know, thou emptiest me, but thou fillest me ever with fresh life. And we need to be emptied. We need to be empty so that we can be filled. And that's how I feel. At Sanya, I feel like I have a lot of energy because I feel like I'm being filled. I'm, I'm constantly working to empty out my own issues. And as you said, the work is still ongoing. I'm still nowhere near enlightenment. It's probably going to take me many more lives. But that doesn't matter because I'm not here to get enlightened. I'm not here to make a billion. I'm not here to get to the end. I'm here because I have realized that service is what makes me happy. And the only thing that makes me sad is when I take that service and measure it and say, am I doing it enough? Do I have enough Instagram followers? Am I making enough money? 
as soon as I measure that service, then I get super stressed <laughs> and then I want to quit. But that's what my meditation practice is there for. And that's what my teacher is there for. Because, for example, last time he was here in Malta, I was in the midst of this stress ball phase. And I could even see within my relationship with him that I was off. You know, I was so, I was in such an ego state. I was in the narcissism of like, my struggle is greater than anyone else's. Mm -hmm. And this is too much for me. And I wanted everyone's pity that this is too much for me. So (laughs) I could see there was a disturbance because you cannot receive from a teacher, especially a spiritual teacher, when you're in your ego. You have to be humble to receive. And I wasn't. So I, I could feel like I was off, but I couldn't fix it. But... He just noticed it. He didn't judge me. But whenever he could, he just reminded me. Listen, there is a higher purpose. This is your service. Release the attachment. Just work on what you're doing. Remember, this is the cauldron. You are the pot. You are the... Not the cauldron, the kiln. (laughs) This is the kiln and you are the pot. And this challenges is making you into that beautiful mug or vase or whatever you're going to be. And... It is true. And right now I I feel like I've come out of a bit of that darkness. And I feel like I have that spring in my step again. I'm seeing sort of the light at the end of the tunnel and we're moving in the right direction. But who knows what's going to happen next month or next year or who knows the challenges. One thing that is for sure is that life doesn't stop to challenge us. So I really feel like whatever it is in your life, for me it's business, for you it's music, whatever it is, if you take it as your sadhana, make your life, your work, your passion as your sadhana, and the gifts that you will get out of it are beyond what you can even imagine. So just before we uh, get ready to kind of take this full circle, I want two things from you before we close. Uh, one is I know you read a lot and I think I trust your judgment on good books to read especially in the topic of sort of health self-development spiritual growth Um, I would love a book recommendation from you and also why you feel to recommend that book why sort of how it's impacted you and also just a tip in general to give to the public specifically on how to deal with you mentioned at the very beginning the emptiness you felt when you first arrived in Peru because I feel like a lot of us go through times in our lives where we feel extremely isolated alone and unequipped to deal with our life and and the challenges Uh, so a tip to deal with that emptiness okay the challenge is going to be choosing just one book right (laughs) I think I might have to choose the book that I already referenced in here minding your business because That is really the marriage of spirituality and business that I think is a very good reflection for for what I do and who I am. But I'd like to give an honorable mention to any books by Caroline Mace, spelled M-Y-S-S, because she's also very good at helping people with their shadow work. And her books really helped me. It was one of her books that I read during my first sadhana, and it has really stayed with me it really helped me through that experience and on a deep level helped me give a language to the things inside me that I was feeling that I couldn't quite understand I would love to give you a list of 10 books but I'll leave it there 
Luckily, I am the host of all the other episodes, so I can sneak in book <laughs> recommendations many, many more. here and there. Yeah, as a side note, actually, on, on what you just said, she has a, a one particular book called um, Why People Don't Heal and How They Can. And I think that's really relevant to what you were just saying about the shadow work and all of that, because often you have to be quite brutal uh, to to go through your shadows and that you need this very sort of harsh truth and I think she's really really good at that often her books are a little bit of a slap in the face but it's always one that's greatly needed so maybe we can throw that one in there yes definitely that book and also sacred contracts I think is a nice book because it goes into your specific archetypes and the work that you're called to do so it's quite nice to sort of realize the internal dynamics that are underlying some of your relationships to different aspects of your life Mm -hmm. with regards tips come to Sanya (laughs) (laughs) no I mean I love I joke but at the same time what I'm trying to do is bring into Sanya all the things that helped me and have helped even other people so I'm trying to create a hub where you can come and and make use of these tools but I think something that came to mind when you asked that question is to seek inner experience. I think that's my number one tip. And if you don't know how to do it, ask yourself who can help me do it. It might be a friend, it might be a mother, whoever in your life. You can figure out things on your own, but that's not really the most efficient way to do it. If there's someone in your life who has a bit more knowledge than you, who can point you in the right direction, then I think that's a really efficient way to do that. We all have that one crazy friend who's into yoga. (laughs) So go and ask that one crazy friend of yours to take you to a class. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Yes. Thank you for coming to be the interviewer. Yeah, I hope, uh, because obviously I know your story quite intimately. I know that there's so much more that we could uh, talk about. So I hope to be able to interview you again and go, go more into detail in various topics. Yeah, I'm just happy to get the basic out there because I do share quite a lot in the podcast. As much as I'm interviewing, it's also a conversation and sort of experiences are shared. And I do reference things like the ayahuasca and, and meditation so I can uh, feel peaceful that people can come back and listen to this and really get a sense and context for what I've experienced and help you guys listening understand why I'm having these conversations in the first place and how I choose the people that I do interview because the the one thing that they all have in common is that they are trying to go within in their own life and have succeeded to some extent to do so. And helping others do the same. Yes, not all the guests, you know, are actively sort of doing that. And, and I don't think you necessarily have to, you know, for some people, service is being a mother. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have no judgment to what people's service is. But just that they find it for themselves, you know, we shouldn't rank and, you know, you have to be changing the world, you know, sometimes just, you know, that inner work and being up, if you're very angry, healing from anger is really a service definitely to your family and the people around you and and actually to the whole conscious, collective consciousness. And actually everyone is needed and all all roles need to be filled. Yes. And I think, you know, I'll end on this note that we heal ourselves But the reality is that every time we heal ourselves, we are healing everybody. And every mother that heals herself is healing all mothers. Every woman who's healing herself is healing all women. Every man who heals himself is healing all men. 
So I think, you know, our purpose is there whether we even see it or not. So that's that's a really beautiful thing to keep in mind. Don't judge, you know, your purpose as big or small, but just go within and the answers will be there. Great. Is that a good good ending line? So super. <laughs> I was going to not say anything and just cut it right there. <laughs> thank you, but I would thank just you. like to say thank you to the listeners for tuning in and listening and as I have been saying the last couple of episodes that this is a go within revolution that we're trying to create you know a tribe of people like-minded who believe in the power of the inner world and this podcast is all about sharing knowledge but also us supporting each other along the journey so thank you and see you next episode Right now, when you come in and switch to T-Mobile, you get the amazing iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. <sighs> Aren't these mountains majestic? Joe, are you even looking? I'm posting these amazing pics I took with my iPhone 11 Pro. It has three cameras. Whoa, those pics are amazing. And you have service too? T-Mobile. Their newest signal goes farther than ever before. Uh, then you can look up whether these are bear tracks, right? Or we could just run. Come to a T-Mobile store today and get iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. And right now, get four lines for just 30 bucks a line with AutoPay. Switch today. Contact us if you cancel or credits may stop in full price due, plus taxes and fees via 24 monthly credits for well-qualified customers with qualifying service and finance agreement. Zero down with trade-in plus 3125 times 24 months. Pre-credit price $999.99. 0% APR while supplies last. Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers!